Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to look at the beginning of the book of Vayikra, because that's where we are. We're at the beginning of the book of Vayikra of Leviticus. Um, we've been through a lot of different iterations of Leviticus. We've been through a lot of different um, ways in to Leviticus. Uh, and I was, Bert, going to do something that was going to make you so excited, but we're not. Um, so we were going to do the little Aleph, uh, but I got sidetracked um, because Aviva Zornberg, who you know uh, is a master teacher of Torah, an analyzer, whatever the noun is, an analyzer, thank you, of uh, the text as a literary uh, person. And she said she originally wasn't going to do a commentary on Leviticus, which she hadn't. She did Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, because Leviticus is not a narrative text, right? It's a collection. It really, Leviticus is the priestly manual. So what are the priests supposed to do? We're not sure if it was written for priests or written so the people understood what the priests were supposed to be doing, which is unheard of in the ancient Near East. In the ancient world, the priest's business was secret. That was kept from the people. Only the cult understood what was happening inside the private domain of the temple. Uh, And so we're not sure if this was one of Israel's radical um, democratizing moments where it's published what the priests are doing in the place that the Israelites can't go, right? Um, so that they're held accountable on some level. Or is it that this is um, that this is actually the manual for the priests, by the priests, and kind of an in-house um, set of instructions? We're not sure. Uh, so, so in general, it's very technical. It's like a it's like a manual, like in a lot of ways. So. Uh, so Zornberg originally, originally wasn't going to write about it because it wasn't narrative. However, thanks to the pandemic, she, you don't often thank a pandemic for much, but she had the time to really focus, she said, on the Midrashim, all of the amazing amounts of rabbinic literature written around and about and through the words of Leviticus. Uh, and she, she, she has written and has published a commentary on Leviticus. Thank the Lord. Okay, so um, I'm very happy, and I thought, well, I'll take a look at it since we're starting the book, and oh, oh my God. Okay, so what you know I'm going to love, what you know that I love what I'm about to say, which is that she reads into everything going on with all of the animal sacrifice in Leviticus. She reads into that a lot about what incident? The golden calf. The golden calf. Excellent. Excellent. Whoever who was that at home? Awesome. Me, 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 me. Okay, Victoria. Thank you. Uh love that. So so she reads into everything that's happening in Leviticus, vestiges of the Ega Hazahab, of the golden calf. You have to love that. Right? So carrying through this this technical manual kind of stuff having to do with addressing the one of the great narrative sequences, the receiving of, of the instructions for the Mishkan, the Egel Azahav, the building instead of the golden calf, and then the building of the Mishkan and the second set of tablets. Okay, so, um, but we're not going to get very far 
uh, in the book. And, and what I love about her, and, and every time you study Torah, no matter how long you've been studying Torah or teaching Torah, um, is that you, you find something new. You find something different, which is why we keep uh, coming back. And it's why I say to my bar mitzvah kids and bat mitzvah kids, it's why we take that scroll out of the box every week. Um, every of every year, because it's like, and their job is to give a speech about who cares about Leviticus 1, right? Like, who cares? It's very easy to say, well, we know that story. We've studied that story. Like, we know that. Who cares? Why take it out of the box? And that's because there's something right always when we turn it and turn it and turn it, as the rabbis say, everything is in it. So we're going to look, which I've never done before, look at the very end of Exodus and the very beginning of Leviticus, right? We're going to look at the closing. We just finished Exodus last week, the book of Exodus, and we are beginning the book of Leviticus. So Zornberg starts her commentary on Leviticus looking back to the end of Exodus, which, again, I have not ever done. So let's look at chapter 40 of Exodus. Exodus 40, verse 33. So we're talking about, remember last week we had the, 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 the coverage of building the Mishkan, erecting the Mishkan. So let's look here. Um, and so we're, we're getting the very end of Piku Day. We did, um, Bayakel and Piku Day. Here's the end of Piku Day. Okay. So he sets up the enclosure around the tabernacle and the altar, because remember the Israelites can't go in and they can't see anything that's happening there. There has to be a screen around it. And he puts up the screen for the gate of the enclosure so that there's a way in and out of the outer enclosure. When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the presence of yud heh vav filled the tabernacle. All right, some other time, I really want to do this with you. I want to learn about Ohel Moed versus Mishkan, but that's not today. Um, so the cloud covered the Ohel Moed. Is that the same thing as the Mishkan? Is it inside the Mishkan? Sometimes we see Moshe in a tent outside the Mishkan. Okay. So the cloud covered the tent of meeting for all intents and purposes. Right now we're talking about the Mishkan. And the presence of yud heh vav filled the Mishkan. Well, look at 35. Moshe could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the presence of yud heh vav filled the tabernacle. So Moshe can't go in because God's presence fills the Mishkan. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until such time as it did lift. For over the tabernacle, of a cloud of yod rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night, in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. We're familiar with this, the cloud in the day, the pillar of fire at night. What, what, we, what I don't think I've paid great attention to in the past is that, so the, and the, the and, uh, Anan rests, the cloud rests on the Mishkan, God's kavod fills the Mishkan, Moshe cannot enter. Okay. That is the end of Exodus, right? So the cloud is there by day and the fire by night, and it would accompany them through all of their journeys. That's the end of Exodus. 
And where does Exodus pick up? Where does this narrative pick up? The beginning of Numbers. Leviticus is inserted in between, what did I just say? Exodus and Numbers. Leviticus is dropped in. There used to be four books. Leviticus is dropped, uh, three books. Leviticus is dropped in. Deuteronomy is added. Okay. So with that said, it's interesting to link the end of Exodus to the beginning of Leviticus because that's not originally what happened. It was the end of Exodus going right into Numbers. So, but as my teacher always reminded me, because I'm somebody who liked to tear everything apart, um, my teacher, Tikva Frey-Markensky, stop nodding, Judy. Um, the, my teacher, Tikva Frey-Markensky, used to say, but remember, we have a final redaction. We have a final editing. And it's the final editing that deserves as much attention as any documentary hypothesis that wants to pull it all apart. So if we look like Zornberg's going to do at the way it wound up, okay, yes, originally Exodus went into numbers, fine. But that's not the text we're given. The text, this, the final redaction, is Exodus into Leviticus. And so she takes that seriously, the end of one and the beginning of the other. So let's, let's look at the beginning of Leviticus. And you can see in your book and on the screen and wherever else you're looking at this, you can see the little Aleph at the end of the first word. Yes? It is a scribal tradition. I promise, Bert, I'll go there at some point. Um, it's a scribal tradition, uh, and there's, of course, reams of Midrash written about why the little Aleph. So, Vayikra el Moshe, Vaydaber Adonai Elav, Meohel Moed Lemor. All right. And he called to Moshe, and Yudhevavhe spoke to him from within the tent of meeting, saying, the Midrashic opening for all of this is, what is the word Vayikra doing there? Why is the word Vayikra there? Hmm? Yeah, but, but it says, and God spoke to Moshe saying, that's all you need. Vaydaber Adonai Moshe. God spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when any of you presents an offering of cattle to Yudhei you shall choose your offering from the herd or the flock, blah, 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 blah. Maybe it calls back to um, Moses being outside of the tent of meeting, so he's at a distance from God, so he has to call out to him to come closer. So you then you would sort of expect Vayukra, and he called El Moshe to Moshe, and Moshe approached the tent of meeting. Moshe went up the mountain. Moshe came to the bush. Moshe, you could, but it's not necessary i mean you know it's kind of it's implied if you if whoever is plopping this in here wants to have a transitional statement to connect what came before to what's about to come you want to call back to the tent of meeting you want to call back to what just ended it you don't have to have the tent of meeting in there you could just say god said speak to the people so but, it's as important for you that ohel moed is there that that yeah, as a connector. Maybe okay. that's why that's there. Okay. Rita? Well, maybe the word call relates to calling. This is his calling. Moses, listen up. This is going to be your calling. Okay. I'm just playing with the word. Okay. Vayikra. So you're saying it's something different than debearing. 
Of it's course. something different than just speaking. Yeah. yeah, this is your calling, so listen up. Oh, and how is that different from when he was called to set the people free from Egypt? Well, also his call. Well, it's still your calling. This is a new stage of the people. We're now a uh, uh, people wandering in the desert. So you still have a calling, not just to take them out of Egypt. Okay. So Rita's touching on something that the rabbis bring up in their commentary, which is Moshe's not allowed in the Mishkan. God's presence fills the Mishkan. It says, and Moshe couldn't go in. Who is going to go into the Mishkan? Aaron. So on some level, it could seem that Moshe's job is done. Moshe's done. The important thing now, the relationship between the divine and the human now, vis-a-vis Israel, is going to be mitigated by the cult. Aaron is head of the cult. The ways that people are now going to be in relationship to God is, is going to be all about holiness vis-a-vis purity and impurity. What kind of animal, what kind of procedure for which kind of behavior, right? All of that is how the relationship is mitigated now. And Moshe, he kind of doesn't have much going on with that. It's Aaron who's the head of the cult and will now be the head officiant, the lead officiant in the Mishkan, not Moshe. And so it could be understood that Moshe is like, okay, I guess I'm, gonna go to florida now and play pickleball and like i'm not florida oh right 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 i forgot i forgot remember i grew up in georgia so florida used to be like a real a really wonderful place so um it was right next door it was great we loved going there so um so he he could be seeing his life right now as one of retirement from active leadership so read it to your point this is possibly something about not so fast, right? Not so fast, Moshe. Like there's still work for you to do. Bert? Is it possible that Moshe wasn't paying attention? To what? To Yudevave. And Yudevave had to say, oh, yo, Moses, before he, he started to talk to Mo, or she so, started to talk to Moses. So the rabbis start one of their commentaries with, why did God have to call to Moshe? Did Moshe, God forbid, leave the divine presence? Not possible. So to, just to answer your question, for the rabbis, you, can, it's like, it's not possible that this could be a call about come back because it's not possible. Moshe Rabbeinu would have left the divine presence. But, you know, can you also rabbis, explain about the Vav at the beginning of Vayikra, the, the particle? Because it's there's no English equivalent. It's kind of like and, but. This is no, this is the Vav of the converted past. Okay, so this when is you not take the con- past tense and put a vav in front of it, it's future. I mean, it, it okay. converts it. It's not a connection to the prior thing, Mm-mm. like an and. Does this mean that um, Yudhe Vavhe will be confined to the Mishkan and never appear again out of the Mishkan? So the pillar of fire travels with them by night. Right. So that's outside of the Mishkan. Okay. And the cloud by day. Those are both outside of the Mishkan. But remember, remember the anxiety of last week. What was the anxiety at the end of last week? It took a week to forget. Wow. At least the Israelites were given 40 days and 40 nights to forget. Um, the anxiety was what? Because of the golden calf, what's the anxiety at the end of all of this building? We read this beautiful commentary about will God move in? 
Will God move into the the mother-in-law's suite or not? Because remember, they were given the instructions. God never said, okay, go ahead and start the actual construction project. God never said that Moshe took that leap, one of our commentaries told us. Moshe took that leap out of hope and faith and trust that if he goes ahead, God will in fact move in to L'Shachen B'Tocham, to dwell in their midst. That's the anxiety last week. So now, right, we get that God fills the Mishkan. That's a good thing. Like there should have been a drum roll here, right? When it says that the cloud gate and God's presence filled the Mishkan, there should have been fireworks over those verses. Um, Because look, it worked. God moved in. The beloved has truly forgiven us because God moved in with us. This is so exciting. So then how do we get Vayikram Moshe? Like, and so, the, so that's when the rabbis say, well, where'd Moshe go? All right. So Vayikram Moshe, so God calls to Moshe. Then it says, and sorry, it's the converted future that makes a verb past tense biblically. Yikra is future. He will call. If you put a vav in front of it, and he called. So it, it's the converted past. You take the future tense, put a vav in front of it, and that's how you convert it to past tense. That's biblical grammar. The, a flipper vav. Is that how they teach it? Yeah. yeah. The flipper vav. Okay. I've heard it as the vav conversive. Well, yours is yours is better. Yours sounds better though. The flipper vav. Okay. So so God call God calls to Moshe. And God and Yehovah says to Moses from within the tent of meeting, speak to the Israelite people. All right, let's see. Um, this is all from Aviva Zornberg. Her book is called The Hidden Order of Intimacy. Remember, she's the beginning of desire, intimacy. Hers is all her her looking at Torah is all about an erotic and not in that way that we think of it, not sexy, like the erotic relationship between Israel and God between humanity and the divine, that longing for one another, the the ways that union is both powerful and terrifying, right? And it's more about kind of, you know, as, we, as we've talked a lot about the infant mother, you know, connection, that, that being one, but also the terror of that, the terror of not having that, the anger involved when I don't get what I want, the ways we project onto other things, transitional objects, that's all... So Zornberg is very much about it being a very intimate relationship with all of the charge and all of the terror that goes with actually being vulnerable to one another. Um, and God as the complete other, capital O on the one hand, and yet infusing, right, everything, like there is no separation. So this that's how she understands all of these texts, which is a beautiful lens through which to read it. So, um, you know, these sheets are seen by everybody on Safaria. So I always have to give the context. So we have um, the end of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus. I didn't think you forgot. All right. In Ramban, so now she's quoting Ramban, Nachmanides. In Ramban's narrative, and I don't have the text here, the two books are joined across a formal gap. God's glory is the subject of the closing sentence of Exodus, God remains the subject of the opening sentence of Leviticus. Moses' situation outside the Mishkan, excluded by God's presence, is resolved by God's call of invitation. 
So Ramban locates the, the word to call as the resolution between Moshe's exclusion and Moshe's inclusion. You need that word. You need that term to close that gap before God can speak. There has to be a way to to fix the problem of Moshe being outside and, and locating Moshe inside. In this situation, the divine call overcomes overcomes Moses' exclusion. At the same time, however, a new consciousness of inside and outside comes into existence. One book ends with alienation, while the new book begins with closure. All right, so we have a new relationship with God, and that it, or, or, or an awareness of um, sanctity and the charge that connection with God is going to bring, and that is inside and outside. That is a new idea, says Ramban, says Nachmanides, and so we need this this call to to bridge some of the new stuff that's happening after the end of Exodus. All right, let's look at our classic commentator, of course, Rashi. If you got a question, you got a problem with the text, the first place you go is Rashi. Let's see what Rashi says. Zornberg brings him here. Vayikra el Moshe. So Rashi's commenting on Vayikra el Moshe, and he called to Moshe. So Rashi has a problem too. Rashi doesn't comment unless there's a problem. So Rashi sees Vayikra el Moshe, he called to Moshe, as a problem, or not a problem, but a, a question that needs addressing. So, so what does he say? All oral communications of God to Moses, whether they are introduced by Deber, which we're going to get, which we get here, right? God spoke to Moshe saying, or by Amar, God said to Moses, or by Tzav, God commanded, were preceded by a call to prepare him for the forthcoming address. It is a way of expressing affection. The mode used by the ministering angels when addressing each other, as it is said, so you always go to another part of Torah, because remember, it's not a history book. There's no early or late in Torah. You can pull a verse from anywhere and drop it right here to inform something about the verse we're reading. So what what does Rashi do? Rashi goes to another place where we get they called to each other then speak. Where does that happen? In Isaiah 6-3, when it talks about Malachi Hasharet, that we sing about on Friday night, the Malachi Hasharet call one to the other, and one called to the other and said, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot, Malocho Haaretz Kavodo. Right? That's, remember when we stand in the Amidah and we go up on our tiptoes? Kadosh, 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 to be a part of the angelic choir. That's not important. What's important is they call to each other. Vayikra, right? They call one to the other before they say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. That is the language that they use before they start speaking. So that's an example. And for Rashi, this is the language of what he calls chiba, love, affection. So God affectionately calls to Moshe. Sweetie, honey, honey. Um, Moshe, quit vacuuming. Um, come here. I have something to tell you. Right. So, so God calls in loving language to Moshe, the language of chiba, of love. 
And somebody else is going to pick up on the idea that if we're talking about this is what the angels do to one another before they praise the divine, this is what equals do. They call before speaking. I really think it's God saying, Moshe, you're my equal. So this is this is what they play with. They really play with this because it's not that God is saying you're my equal. God is treating Moshe as a peer. That's serious in this moment is treating Moshe with the incredible affection one has for a peer. And then they're going to go, some of the commentaries are going to ask the question, what? Like, why? Like, on what basis? Right. So, but yeah, so the, it seems that they're suggesting, which is radical if you think about it, that, right, that the rabbis are suggesting God is using the language of peer to peer with Moshe on purpose to show Moshe how much God loves Moshe. Possibly because underneath a lot of what's going on right now is anxiety on Moshe's part of being displaced by Aaron. George? They were equal because Moses also uh, changed God's mind, if you will, about killing everyone around the golden calf. So it seems Moshe has some significant influence. Yes. Right? Um, Although one could argue one's child can convince one of something, they are not your equal. They can say, please don't be so mad. I didn't mean it. And it can turn you away from your wrath and your punishment, um, but are not your equal. So, I, But I hear what you're saying. Moshe, Moshe has a lot of influence, that's for sure, um, in a way that nobody else has or does or will. Um, all right. In Rashi's proof text, this is Zornberg. Wherever I'm not giving you a source, it's Zornberg. In Rashi's proof text from Isaiah, The angels call to one another even before they begin praising God. Rashi shifts the scene from the call of God to a human being to a mutual calling between equals. To illustrate God's particular relation to Moses, Rashi focuses on the tonal resonance of the word kara, calling. Affection and encouragement set the key for the heavenly choir. It is the essential preliminary, like the sounding of the tuning fork, to their harmony, an intimate calling to attention. For Rashi, this tone always characterizes God's calls to Moshe. In a sense, it bridges the gap that exists even between equals. So the angels don't have to call to one another before they speak, but it is a way of like hitting the tuning fork so that we're in sync, so we're in alignment. It is an affectionate, intimate call to attention. Um, and it's, it's like what Laura said earlier, like, sweetie, right? You, that you, it's an endearment about pay attention to me. I have some, I have, it's a, it's a good kind of attention I want from you. And I'm going to give a good kind of attention back to you. I'm not calling you to talk about what happened with the children, right? I'm calling to you because I want to be in a, in an affectionate connection with you right now. I'm, I'm just thinking of our our habit of calling to each other. We we use the shofar to call to each other too. I mean that's that's everybody pay attention. This is an important moment. Do you see any connection between that the use of the shofar, that literal sound? I, I and think this they moment. I think Rashi and the commentators are are um, differentiating between the kind of call you have with shofar and what vayikra is. 
So I think, yeah, right. I think they are purposefully playing on. There's lots of ways to call people's attention, right? But you hear a shofar in the ancient Near East. Like you, your adrenaline slams in, the amygdala starts screaming. Like you, you better get somewhere fast where you can get to your people. Like you know, like it's it's an alarm of some kind. Um, it could be for a party, but you pay attention. Like something's got to happen right now. Is a different sense, and so I think yes, they're they're distinguishing by Yikra as being this different kind of call that is very much about softness and responsiveness and intimacy. Okay, so this is from Yoma. The verse says, and all these sources are from Zornberg. These are all her sources that she brings forward. I just brought them to you. The verse says, as we've seen 17 times now, and he called unto Moshe, and yud spoke unto him from within the tent of meeting. Why does the verse mention calling before speaking? Right? So, lama hikdim kriya ledibur. Why does kriya, Call precede Dibur, speech. God did not speak to him, why, and God did not speak to him at the outset. The Torah is teaching Derech Eretz. How would you translate Derech Eretz, Sarah? Does that, does it carry over into Yiddish, Derech Eretz? Respect. So, you treat people as, as Chaim would say, with Derech Eretz. That you treat people with Derech Eretz. And it's a broad term, meaning the proper way to teach people. It literally means derech, the way, Eretz, of the land. Like the, the way we do things. And the way we do things is they're referring to the way we're supposed to do things, right? So the polite way. So, so the Yoma is saying, Torah here in putting this sentence together the way it is, is teaching us derech Eretz, is a model of respectful behavior. How? A person should not say anything to another unless he calls him first. This supports the opinion of Rabbi Hanina. As Rabbi Hanina said, a person, a person shouldn't say anything to his peer, his friend, except for he had already called him, unless he calls out. So you don't just go, oh, that's a great sweater. Where did you get that sweater? That's rude. The Torah is teaching, according to Rabbi Hanina's teachings, um, it's teaching etiquette, it's teaching manners, it's teaching the, the right way to do things. You say, Dana, Dana, fine. Where did you get that sweater? That is such a beautiful color on you. You don't just start speaking. That that's considered aggressive. It's considered rude. It's considered Jewish, yeah, that's probably true. Um, it's considered um, to be like, it's abrupt. It's, you know, you're kind of jerking somebody out of their their own space. Like you you need to, you need to warn them, George, what an amazing scarf. You look positively British today. So, and can I tell you how many times a day I have to back up and put dear so-and-so in because I read their email and I'm like, okay, Tuesday might work, but that, and then I'm like, I finish writing and then I'm like, I have to go back and go, dear Laura, right? Because, because it's considered rude to just kind of jump in without kind of calling first. It's not just to call lovingly. It's called chutzpah to not call first, to not introduce that you're, you're wanting someone's attention rather than just snagging their attention. 
right? Rather than just jumping in like that, Lee? One of the things I'm finding out is that when you call the medical community and you get on the phone with someone who you're trying to schedule, but you stop and you say, hi, how are you? How is your day going? And there's like silence because you're going, you're asking that person how they are before you launch into the request. Beautiful. Derek Eretz. Mark has something. Um, so Derek Eretz is, you know, how are you? Not just I need you to do something for me because you, now it's I it. Now you are a function to me. You are not a human being. I thou is how are you? How's your day? You know, it seems to me that one of the underlying themes here is the development of an entirely new relationship to God. Um, and that it really, um, you know, if you wanted to go into the uh, sort of the developmental sequence that this parallels, um, it's the next stage after what Zornberg is talking about, where there is a kind of uh, symbiosis between the infant and mother and a feeling of, of omnipotence on the part of the, the uh, infant, a lack of dis- differentiation. But in the next stage where there is a development of a boundary and a sense of the other, there, there is a whole evolution of ways in which the power of the other can be controlled. And I think all of these things represent that evolving kind of relationship with God. God is not any longer our omnipotence. It's now God's omnipotence. Beautifully said, Mark. Beautifully said. That is exactly what's happening with the Mishkan. Now, God is recognized as completely other in a sense of direct contact, right? So there can't be direct contact because you'll blow up. It's it's too much. Um, God is other. And now it's how do we mitigate, right? How do we, like you said, how do we control? I don't want to use manipulate. It sounds so negative. But how do we control the omnipotent other being as close as we can have mom, right? Without mom eating us alive, right? And so that's what the Mishkan's going to be. And then here's the behavior y'all need to do to ensure that mom can be here. Because she can't come down here if the place is a wreck. She's not coming down here if, like, there's toys everywhere and dirty clothes and whatever. She's not coming down. So all that has to be cleaned up and put away. And then mom's going to come down here and relax on the sofa with us and maybe read us a book. That's exactly what the Mishkan is, is mitigating that new awareness of God as completely other. Okay, in, in some ways. All right. The Talmud teaches, so this is Zornberg on the Yoma text. Um, the Talmud teaches a normal polite behavior to address the other by name before beginning to speak. To start speaking abruptly without calling by name is a kind of aggression, an entry into private space. Similarly, God hates one who enters his friend's house suddenly, meaning without warning, because that's chutzpah. Right, Sarah? The door knocker protects privacy. This can be learned from God's behavior when God enters the Garden of Eden in order to rebuke Adam. And here's the text from Genesis 3.9. And God called out to Adam and said, Ayeka, where are you? God observes the same decorum in addressing Moshe. Calling before speaking then is a matter of propriety shared by God 
angels and human beings. It is a matter of respecting boundaries. What's happening over there, Laura? Okay. All right, so I let's would look add, at... It's also about connection. It's a difference between speaking with and speaking at. Mm-hmm. I think and, it's speaking and, to rather than speaking at. Right, right. I want to speak to you. I call you first. If I talk at you, it's aggressive and it is a violation of boundaries. But we, we need a connection before I can speak. Nachon. If I'm going to speak to, to you, not Right. We need you. some kind of connection. Right. I can't just yell into the phone. I've got to dial your number first. Right. I can't tell you how many times I have to say in my life. Like, I'm yelling to you, not at you. Okay, that was way too fast and loud to laugh, Laura. <laughs> yes, exactly. Instructions about how to speak with someone. Exactly, like, like Bert is pointing out. All right, let's look at Vayikra Rabbah 1-7. And God called to Moshe. Here's a case we're not clear what we're commenting on. And God called to Moshe. When God said to Moshe, make me a tabernacle, he, Moses, inscribed on everything he made, even as God commanded Moses. Imagine this rabbinic moment, all right? So the rabbis imagine that when God says, make me a mishkan and gives the instructions, Moshe writes on everything, as commanded, as God commanded Moshe, as God commanded Moshe, as God commanded Moshe, on everything in the Mishkan. And God says, Moshe has done me all this honor, and I'm inside while he's outside. Call him, that he may enter the innermost sanctum. Therefore it is said, and God called to Moshe. Explicitly, this is Ornberg, explicitly linking the books of Exodus and Leviticus, the Midrash describes the divine discomfort at excluding Moses from the structure he himself had so devotedly built for God. The appropriate separation between the work overseer and the owner of the building suddenly seems strangely inappropriate to God. A conventional decorum is swept aside by a finer divine sensibility. This house was designed for encounter, for intimate speech between God and Moshe. Moshe thus belongs on the inside. The word vayikra comes to evoke an intimate paradoxical affection. The words chiba and chaviv convey the tone of the call, right? Chiba, the language of love. Chavivi, you've heard chavivi, right? My, you know, my, my buddy, my friend, my beloved, right? It is this tone, rather than the content of God's speech, the commandments of the sacrifices, that becomes the subject of midrashic interest. God's tenderness comes to close the gap between Moses outside and God inside. From this point onward, God's relations with Moshe are played out under the sign of chiba, of a newly tender tone of revelation. So, Zornberg is suggesting that the Midrash is imagining that not only is God saying your work isn't done, I love you more than ever. We don't have to schlep the kids anymore. We don't have to right go run errands and, and try to catch each other later. That that's all done. It's all you've done everything you needed to do. You now we can just be together. We we have this beautiful Mishkan, and now we can just be together. It changes, Zornberg is arguing. The Midrash imagines, the rabbis imagine, this is a shift in tone that is permanent. That God now has 
a different kind of affectionate intimacy with Moshe than was possible when everything else was going on. Exactly the opposite of how Moshe might be experiencing his, this phase of his life, right? Perhaps that has something to do with why Leviticus is where it is, because <clears throat> this is kind of a, a, a statement of a wish fulfillment that um, this relationship that, that God expresses toward Moses, I think it can best be understood as a wish fulfillment relating to the way in which all of the rules and strictures of Leviticus govern the way in which relationships with God are to be facilitated. Okay. So the wish fulfillment is kind of projected onto the relationship between Moshe and God, that that's what we want. We want that kind of a loving interaction. That's the dream. And all the rituals are, are to try to make that happen. Dana? So is this about the evolution of Moses understanding God, or is it about the evolution, or and, or is it about the evolution of God, too? Because when you were talking about the omnipresent mother figure, you know, the mother relationship changes as the baby grows, you know. Tell me about it. I mean, at first you are omnipresent, but you have to, you know, the mother has to evolve too yes. once once the baby has grown and matured. <laughs> Just noting God's too. No, that's absolutely right. That is definitely, it seems like a both and here in terms of who's developing what capacities and right and who needs to who needs to to evolve into the new kind of relationship. Okay. But yes, absolutely. All right. So Moshe, so Moshe here, like, um, okay. Anyway, let's look at Vayikra Rabbah. Again, this is Zornberg brings this text forward. You find that when the Holy One, blessed be God, revealed God's self to Moses from the midst of the thorn bush, the latter hid his face from God, as it is said, and Moses hid his face. Because of this, they always have to give a proof text. It doesn't matter that we know the story. Right, The tradition in the Midrash is to bring the proof text. You, you bring it and you paste it here. Because of this, the Holy One, blessed be God, said to him, Come now for, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, said Rabbi Eliezer. The letter hey at the end of the word signifies, If you will not deliver them, no one else will deliver them. At the Red Sea, Moshe stood aside, and the Holy One, blessed be God, said to him, Lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thy hand over the sea, and divide it. As much as to say, if you will not divide it, no one else will divide it. At Sinai too, Moses stood aside, right? And he said to him, said he to him, come up unto God, thou, as if to say, if thou wilt not come up, no one else will come up. In the tent of meeting, he stood aside, but the Holy One said to him, until when wilt thou keep thyself? The hour waiteth but for thee. You have proof that this is so, for out of them all the divine word called none but Moses, as it is written, and the Lord called unto Moses. Okay, clear as mud, right? The good news is we have the teacher, Aviva Zornberg, to unpack this midrash. In Midrash Vayikra Rabbah, Moshe's modesty becomes a theme that arouses God's response. In one midrash, this modesty is traced back to the burning bush, the midrash we just read, Right, Moshe turns aside, he turns away. Because of this, God commissions him to speak to Pharaoh. Because Moshe was humble 
and turned away, God commissions him. A similar dynamic occurs at the Red Sea, at Sinai, and now at the tabernacle. On this occasion, God addresses him with some ambivalence. How long will you humble yourself? The hour awaits none but you. God signals out Moshe time and time again. So on this last occasion, there is a note of criticism in God's reproach, even as God calls out to Moshe alone. Um, on this occasion, God addresses him with some ambivalence. How long will you humble, your, humble yourself? The hour awaits none but you. God singles out Moshe time and time again. But on this last occasion, there is a note of criticism in God's reproach, even as he calls out to Moshe alone. Here, the situation is intensified. God chooses to address Moshe alone precisely in the new context of the tabernacle and its sacrifices. Here, Moshe might well have been justified in lowering his profile. His brother Aaron is properly the man of the hour as high priest and chief officiant. But precisely now, God places Moshe front and center, even suggesting that Moshe's diffidence is excessive. So have you ever been in someone's company and they keep putting themselves down and you're like, stop with that. Like, okay, I get it that you're humble and that's great that you're not prideful and arrogant and whatever, but I love you. Stop. Like, I don't like the way you talk about yourself. I don't like the way you talk to yourself. Right? Like, and it seems that she's suggesting God's doing a little bit of that with Moshe. Okay. It happened at this, at the bush. It happened at the sea. You're writing as God commanded Moses on every single thing in the Mishkan. And the, and now you're saying like, pick, so, you know, like it's Aaron, like, and you're backing up again, like, stop. It's you are, you are the person of the moment still. And, and still you back up, right? Um, until when will thou keep thyself, right? The hour waiteth but for thee. This moment is yours. And this is our last text. And he called to Moses. That is what the text says. A person's pride will bring him low, but a humble person will obtain honor. One who flees from power, power pursues him. Moshe fled from power when God said to him, go, I'll send you to Pharaoh. He said, please send somebody else. This teaches you that he fled from power. In the end, he brought the people out of Egypt and split the sea for them and brought the manna down for them and brought them the well and the quails and built the Mishkan. Then he said, from now on, what have I to do? He resigned from any active role. But God said, Bechayecha, as you live, you have a greater task now than ever to teach my children about impurity and purity and to prepare them to offer sacrifices. As it is said, and he called to Moshe when one of you offers a sacrifice. So this Midrash goes further to that next verse, the second verse in Leviticus, where what is the commandment? When someone brings a sacrifice. So so this Midrash is suggesting, God says, "Uh uh-uh, your job is not finished. I'm reading into this now. It's just me now. Aaron's a functionary. He's a, he's a, what do you, what do you call people who are an administrator? Like he, he's a bureaucrat. You're the teacher. You are still the one intimate with me who's going to teach my children, as Mark pointed out, how to stay close to me. There is nothing more important than the role you're going to play now. You don't have to split C's and bring mana and, and appease my anger and blah, blah. Now, you're going to be the teacher who's going to instruct them how to have a different kind of relationship in this stage uh, of, of our being. And that teaching is, in, is an incredibly important 
role. Um, as you live, chayecha, here is the tone of impassioned divine eros, says Zornberg. I want you now more than ever. Now begins Moshe's most significant role, to teach his people the laws of the book of holiness. Just at the moment when Moshe is sure that his time is over, God reverses his expectations. Or to Laura's point, who, or to Dana's point, who's growing here? Or is it that God responds to Moses' incipient desire? Even as he withdraws from positions of power, Moses yearns for dibur, for ongoing communication with God. Even as he acknowledges boundaries, yielding his place to Aaron, barely recognizing his own yearning, God responds to his desire, meaning Moses' desire. Such a scenario ultimately blurs the difference between lover and beloved. One is both inside and outside, subject and object. The decorums, uh, decorums of the social world are transcended. The angels call and are called to. One who enters his friend's house, calling the owner's name, hopes for the desire of the other. The friend who was called responds and converts the aggression of abrupt speech into intimacy. The spaces of sacredness, of proper difference, become spaces inhabited by the desire for desire. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. Right? Right? Aren't we glad that Zornberg decided to write about the book of Leviticus? Yes. Laura? I'm not sure exactly what I'm thinking, but I think if I okay. say it, I will figure it out. Okay. Um, but it, is it, in some ways, I'm thinking of, well, Aaron, Aaron has these clear instructions of what his important role is to do. And Moses may be feeling like, well, what am I supposed to do? And both, both are in, are important roles. Like both are necessary. And so the one is you've got to do all these things these ways. Aaron, that's a big enough job just to do it. So Moses, you're going to model what it looks like for everybody else to sort of take, make sure Aaron can do his job and make sure everything else is kind of working or find the place within you that is connecting to God. Like they're both, he's kind of going to be a role model for everybody else as to how, what can they do when they're not Aaron. Because nobody else is Aaron. Right. And nobody else are the priests. So Moshe is kind of like everybody else. Right. Right. So maybe a democratizing move by God to say, I'm going to keep somebody who's not a priest intimate with me as a model that you don't have to be a priest going forward to be close to me. Yeah. Lovely. It also seems like a, in the parent model where it's like, you know, okay, well, this kid's got this or a teacher. What am I going to give this kid to, you know, to keep them busy with you know, or connected or engaged or they're going to have a different learning modality. So let's try this for that one. So everybody's got something. To everybody's got something to do. I think what I love is that Moshe thinks he's disposable. Moshe thinks once my, once my job is done, I'm not necessary anymore. And I think what I love about Zornberg's interpretation of the Midrashim is that she's saying God is reaching out to Moshe to say, you are more beloved to me now than ever. I mean, I think that's the tone that I love that she sees and, and brings. I, I wouldn't have necessarily gotten that from all those Midrashim, um, but she's brilliant in like putting those together as a collection of rabbinic imagining of God saying, 
I, I still want to talk to you. You're the one I want to talk to. So yes, Aaron's got this really important job and there's other really important ways our relationship is going to be working now that you're growing up and whatever. Um, but that, I love you. I mean, I just think that's such a beautiful, such a beautiful set of Midrashim that understand that Moshe might feel unlovable because he's retiring. You know, but I'm wondering if it even goes a step further. Mm-hmm. So if, if Moshe is a representative of Am Yisrael, the people, this begins, the, so God wants to kill them. God returns in the Mishkan. A relationship is created between God and Moses. It extends to us, each and every person in this room, and it creates a way to have a relationship with God. Yes, and I think it's a that these midrashim, they're not just imagining Moses. I think you're right. I think the rabbis, the rabbis imagine us. The rabbis are longing for Debor with God, right? The, that's what the rabbis are longing for, and so they. They are Moshe, right? Who say, I'm not a priest. I can't serve in your temple. Is there still a possibility of relationship? And I think exactly right that those Midrashim are to be read by those of us who long, who desire, desire. We desire God's desire for us. And we, we want some kind of evidence that we're lovable by, and seeable, right? And valuable by, by that relationship with the divine. Well, if you bring it back to the present day, it reminds us that religion has two parts. There are mitzvot and rituals, and there's the feeling, the emotional part of our religious life. So I think those two brothers are really representing the two important parts of religion. You can't have one without the other. Right. The other thing that gets talked about a lot is the priest and the prophet. So the two roles, that Moshe's the prophet and Aaron's the priest. The priest keeps things functioning as it is. What does the prophet do? Innovates on how it should be. Criticizes how it is and innovates towards a vision of getting us one step closer to how it should be. That that is also the balance, the priest and the prophet. You need someone who's going to keep the synagogue functioning. You need somebody who's going to keep everything happening so that we can have Torah study and Lisa make sure there's muffins and like there's all that stuff happening, right? So that that's, that's the role of the priest. The role of the prophet is to say, do we really want to be gathering on Friday morning? Like, you know, what, what about, what if we gather twice a week? What, you know, so the, the, Prophet is always thinking, how do we change this up? How do we innovate and, and be lovingly critical to move us to the next place? And that's a, that's a hard balance, right? And, and one commentator says, and that is one of the reasons, Judy Griffith will nod her head now, that is one of the reasons that the rabbi's role is so difficult. We are asked to be both. We are asked at the same time, paradoxically, to be the functionary who embodies the institution and embodies everything that's good about this. And at the same time, we're expected to be the prophet who looks forward and says, and we're not doing it right. And we need to change some stuff up and this isn't working. And here's why we're failing. Here's not failing like a membership. I mean, like here's where we're failing our mission and we need to push even where it's not comfortable. And that, that those two roles in the same person in the same job is really difficult for people to both trust you as the embodiment of what works and is working that we want to keep going and to listen to you be critical and 
and push forward past what we're comfortable with. That that's a very difficult set of um, roles to play. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.